Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. We are special breakfast people here at Pantsuit Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is, I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth. It makes it feel special, makes it feel exciting. I don't want to work at it. So the first time I ever saw Wild Grain, which is bake from frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries, I was obsessed. You guys, I've been a member for over a year. It's amazing. It's so easy. Every item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less, no thawing required. You can fully customize your wild grain box. You can choose any combination of breads, pastas, pastries. You can even build a box of only breads, only pastas, or only pastries if you'd like. And for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com pantsuit to start your subscription. Sometimes I make one single croissant just for me because I want to feel special and they're so good. You heard me. Free croissants in every box. And $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. Or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. I think to myself, but imagine what it must be like to be in this process. Constant barrages of questions to have every aspect of your life and your circle of friends and advisors scrutinized. Every dollar you've ever spent scrutinized. And it's a lot. This is Sarah and Beth. You're listening to Pantsuit Politics, the home of grace-filled political conversations. Hello, happy Tuesday. The title of this episode is Primary Panic. We mean to say that is not helpful. Okay, so let's just begin with a big deep breath. Let's also begin by wishing our executive producer, Martha Branitsky, happy birthday. Martha is celebrating her birthday tomorrow, and she has been an amazing delight to have as part of our team here. She was instrumental in our tour stop in California. So we're really excited for her. And we also have a new executive producer to welcome, Amy Whited. Thank you for joining us. We're so excited. We have such a great executive producer team. And if you're interested in becoming an executive producer of Pantsuit Politics, why don't you just head on over to Patreon and check it out. Also, we have some very exciting news. Pantsuit Politics is hitting the road again with live shows. The Nuance Nation tour last year was a massive hit. You were unbelievably kind and also incredibly, what's the word I want? Needy's not right. Um, Forceful in your request for more show dates. So that's what we're doing. At the end of March, mark your calendars. This is a big one. We're going on a four-day, four-city tour. On March 26th, we will be starting in Washington, D.C. The next night, the 27th, we'll be in Philly. 
The next night, the 28th, we'll be in Boston. And the final night, the 29th, we will be in New York City. Did that sound like a Pace commercial? The it was Pace really good. Commercial. I liked it. Yeah, that's what I was trying. And it's real. we're really, really excited. We're changing a lot of ways that we do the tour, including but not limited to. Um, we learned from the Nuance Nation tour that venues don't exactly love it when you spend two to three hours greeting every single person <laughs> who came to the show. So unfortunately, we're going to have to change that a little bit, but we will have tickets to meet and greets with us. We're really excited about that. All the tickets will go on sale on Friday. So definitely check out the show notes for that show. We'll have the links. All the information can be found on the events page of pantsuitpoliticsshow.com. And we're just, we're really excited. We are really excited about you all and about this community. We're less excited about some of the things happening in the United States government. So we're going to talk a little bit about that. And then in the main segment today, we are going to talk about the emails that we're getting about this primary. We're getting a lot of them. They are thoughtful. They pose interesting and good questions. So we're going to dig into that. And then we'll end, as always, with what's on our minds outside of politics. And I'll just tell you that I was sick on Friday and I watched a lot of television. So I have some things to say about that. (laughs) Well, the first big story that rocked D.C. and I would say made a minor impact nationwide is the Roger Stone sentencing fiasco. The prosecutors from the Department of Justice recommended five to seven years as a sentence for Roger Stone, President Trump's associate, who is being sentenced after being found guilty for lying to Congress and campaign contribution violations. Well, Donald Trump did not think that that sentencing recommendation was fair. And so he went to Twitter and shared his frustration as he is wont to do. Attorney General Barr says that the Justice Department made the decision to change its recommendation before this tweet. Beth, do you believe that? Well, this is the problem when you lose the benefit of the doubt. Mm -hmm. I want to believe that. I also, let me just step back and say, five to seven years is a really long time for what Roger Stone did. What he did in terms of lying to Congress, very serious, intimidating witnesses, very serious. That is a hefty prison sentence for those crimes. Perhaps it's because he refused to accept any responsibility and continued to violate court orders throughout the process, not to mention that he has a lifelong pattern, but whatever. Well, it's true. Also, prosecutors used aggravating factors based on the language that he used in intimidating Mm -hmm. the witness. And that particular witness said, I was not, in fact, intimidated. This is how Roger Stone talks. And so... I think it's too high. But look, it's a recommendation. And the judge in the case will ultimately decide the sentence. She'll take into account what the Justice Department recommended. And she'll take into account what Stone's lawyers say, which which is basically, listen, this is an old guy who has more than suffered enough in the public arena. And there's no risk of him um, doing anything that harms the public interest from here. So just give him probation. So there's a wide array of options available to this judge. So Bill Barr says, I heard about this. It was more time than I had been briefed on. We decided to go in and change our recommendation to the court. Now the Justice Department has filed this really odd brief that says, just kidding, we got a little over our skis with that last memo. And actually, court, just do what you think is fair. 
Well, in the meantime, the four prosecutors on the case resigned um, in an act of protest. Then Bill Barr, I think sensing that he had stepped in it in a bit, went on television and said that when Donald Trump tweets about DOJ investigations and cases, it makes his job impossible to do. The fact that Donald Trump did not then tweet in response to an administration official criticizing him makes me think he both knew it was coming and perhaps helped Bill Barr plan this statement. But whatever. I'm real skeptical of these two at this point. And then you have over a thousand former employees of the Department of Justice send a letter calling for Bill Barr's resignation based on this behavior and some other decisions that Bill Barr has made during his time as attorney general saying, you know, this is a this is how it, this is how things run in a banana republic. And this is incredibly detrimental to the Department of Justice. I read a really interesting article about how they pull these Department of Justice um, officials and prosecutors from all over the country for investigations into the president's political enemies. They did it with Clinton. Nothing was found. They did it with Andrew McCabe, who was that there was no recommendation for criminal prosecution. And you see this pattern over and over again. Well, we don't like the outcome and the president doesn't like the political outcome of this. So we'll just pull in another Department of Justice prosecutor to, to reinvestigate because, you know, the, reinve- the investigation's the ballgame at this point in our political environment. Being investigated is, is as good as being convicted um, in, many, in many courts of public opinion around the country. And so I think this behavior as represented by this by the Stone situation, by the reexamination of Michael Flynn's case, it is it's really, really concerning. It's troubling for the investigation to be as good as being convicted in any context. Mm-hmm. We're going to talk more about that in a minute, especially because the Department of Justice should always be reviewing its own work. The role of the inspector general is critically important. A critical eye about how zealous is our prosecution is important. How are we using tools like FISA warrants? How is the FBI conducting its business? These are the most powerful tools our government has outside of the military. And so being able to critique them constantly, openly, and honestly is essential, I think, to us having Mm -hmm. confidence in our government. And Bill Barr is using those tools of self-reflection, but in a way that makes us less confident instead of more confident in our law enforcement agencies because of his ties to the president and because he seems to always use them in a way that shields the president from that critical eye. And so I just can't say enough about how I think the resignation of those four prosecutors is symbolic of the kind of activity that needs to happen, given that Congress has chosen not to check this president in any meaningful way. Those four prosecutors' resignation did not signal a disagreement with mm-hmm. supervising attorneys. To resign, to to withdraw from a case, you have to have a judge's permission. It's a very big deal in the sentencing phase of a criminal case to ask the judge to allow you to resign. It wastes court resources. It wastes a lot of time. It is 
hugely detrimental in the court of public opinion to the fair and impartial administration of justice, right? It's a very big deal that they resigned. And I think that tells you what you need to know about timing and motivation here and how really the best thing we can have in our government right now are more people who are willing to act as whistleblowers and show Mm -hmm. that they are prioritizing the public interest ahead of their personal interests. When this episode comes out on Tuesday, they're going to have the first hearing with U.S. District Court Judge Amy Berman Jackson, who has shown herself, I think, to be someone who does not suffer fools. And so I'm going to be honest, I'm looking forward to hearing from her in the wake of all this uh, shenanigans and see what she has to say, because she's going to be the one deciding. Well, especially since the president has also personally insulted her on Twitter over the way that she Mm -hmm. handled Paul Manafort's case. And so back to Bill Barr's point, which is a true and good one. He cannot do this job if the president keeps talking about everyone publicly. But if I were Bill Barr, even if I thought that every single call I had made to this point had been the right one, I think the right thing for him to do is to resign. That's never going to happen. Um, And they said that in the letter and they said basically what you said before, which is it's it's essential that officials inside the Department of Justice use the processes, use the press, use what they have available at their disposal to blow the whistle, to expose um, political motivations where they are present and to do what they can do from inside the Department of Justice to protect the rule of law, because Attorney General Barr has shown that he is not interested in doing that. I was thinking about political motivations as I was putting together some notes for this episode, Sarah, and I have this bullet point called the administration's vindictiveness and rising authoritarianism, because I couldn't think of a less menacing description for this category of stories that seemed to underscore what we were just talking about. Yeah, I mean, I think that he is trying to use anything that he can. You know, Donald Trump sees the United States government and particularly the executive branch as serving him. It does not serve the American people and he does not serve the American people. It's to serve him. And so he wants to, you know, the the headline on the cover of The Washington Post today as we're recording on Monday was Trump is trying to rewrite history on the Mueller probe. Now, he's going to use what he can to damage people's reputation, to set a new narrative. I mean, we saw through impeachment that he's going to use our diplomatic core to pursue um, political revenge. And, you know, there's not much hidden as far as his strategies and his motivations at this point. And I think that federalism is suffering greatly because of this approach. One of the stories that broke over the weekend from The New York Times was that the Trump administration is deploying tactical units who serve at the southern border in cities across the country that are designated as sanctuary cities as part of a supercharged arrest operation. What this means is that officers who have special forces type training, including like sniper certification, people who are trained to work at the most dangerous points of the border, are going to be in cities like Chicago and Los Angeles to help with routine immigration arrests. And that's the kind of thing that makes everyone less safe, including those officers. Yeah, I mean, I think when it comes to immigration, What we've seen is that 
in the same way the Trump administration and Donald Trump himself will use whatever is available to him to the Department of Justice. Um, the Office of Customs and Border Control will use whatever is available to them to pursue his immigration agenda. There was an incredibly heartbreaking story in the Washington Post on Sunday about a unaccompanied minor detained, given access to trauma therapy, told that what he said to the therapist would be kept secret. And then um, immigration authorities used the notes from the therapist to try to deport him. The judge was ready to grant his asylum request, and they were using notes from the therapist in this supposedly confidential counseling session against him. It's just, you know, the links they're willing to go to to pursue the immigration agenda is just as troubling as the links they're willing to go to to pursue political grudges. And we see more indication of I will do whatever I want to without reference to the priorities of states and municipalities in the Department of Homeland Security's approach to New York, because New York has passed green light laws, which allow undocumented immigrants to obtain driver's licenses. Driver's licenses, by the way, being a pure prerogative of states. The administration doesn't like that, and they further do not like that New York has restricted the Department of Homeland Security's access to the DMV system. It's the same thing. New York is saying, hey, we'll issue our own documents. Thank you so much. And no, we will not help you deport people from the way that we issue those documents. And as a result, the Department of Homeland Security is restricting New Yorkers from enrolling in trusted traveler programs like Global Mm -hmm. Entry. We also have an expansion of the travel ban that has narrowly been upheld by the Supreme Court as constitutional. The Trump administration has added Nigeria, Myanmar, Eritrea, Kyrgyzstan, Sudan, and Tanzania, all six countries with very substantial Muslim populations. That ban will take effect on February 22nd. And so kind of the wish list of the way this administration keeps out what it deems to be others is taking greater shape in the wake of the impeachment trial. And it makes me really concerned. And it especially makes me concerned when you see the federal government saying, I don't like the way these states are conducting their business, and so we're going to punish them for it. Well, it's the same motivation. We punish our enemies. We seek revenge, whether they be um, political opponents, and we use diplomatic relationships to do that, or whether it be um, local and city officials or the Democratic Party, cities where the Democratic Party is the majority party. And so we'll use the, you know, immigration or customs or whatever tool is at our disposal to seek that revenge. Another thing the administration is focused on right now is a tentative agreement with the Taliban. As we're recording, this still hasn't been formally announced, but we have heard from the Secretary of Defense and others that the administration has reached a seven-day reduction in violence agreement with the Taliban that is quite specific and that would open the door to longer-term negotiation That would essentially mean the United States starts to withdraw troops from Afghanistan. The Taliban agrees not to foster terrorists, including al-Qaeda and ISIS in Afghanistan. And hopefully the country gets to be a little bit more peaceful over time. I 
truly don't know how to feel about this, Sarah, and I'm so interested in your thoughts. One, just the idea of formal diplomacy with the Taliban kind of makes my brain hurt because to give the administration credit where it's due, that force is stronger than the Afghan government. And trying to eventually make our way out of the quagmire that is Afghanistan probably is going to have to include the Taliban at the table. On the other hand, it feels so wrong to me to be having this discussion with them. I feel no sense of trust about it. I worry that, as the BBC noted, this could be kind of Vietnam-esque, where the goal isn't actually to further a safer, more stable Afghanistan, but just to give the United States cover to exit. And so I, I don't know how to read this story. I'm trying to just learn as much as I can about what we're doing here and why we're doing it. I think it's really difficult because... I read political legitimacy and we are giving them political legitimacy. But the Taliban has political legitimacy because of the force and power they've exerted in that region for decades. Um, And then in the same breath, I would argue that we don't want to give political legitimacy to North Korea, despite the fact that they've exerted power and force in their nation. Kim Jong-un and his family have exerted that sort of power for generations. I think there is not one easy answer that's always true for every region of the world. But I do think that an important component when looking at this is do they want political legitimacy from the United States government because they have global goals or even regional expansion and that is a goal? And I think it's easier to argue that North Korea is looking for global legitimacy of the kind that only the United States and Donald Trump standing next to him can offer and that the Taliban is looking for something very different. Um, I think that they are looking for an exit for the United States as much as the United States is, is looking for an exit. And I don't think saying, well, this is bad like Vietnam. I mean, is it bad that we're not fighting the Vietnam War anymore? Like, I don't think it is. Um, I hate that it extended as long as it did. I thought it was, I think it was a giant foreign policy fail and moral and ethical failure on the behalf of the leadership of the United States government. But I also think whatever it took to wrap it up and get out of there was going to require sacrifice. But it's better than the alternative, which is further sacrifice of American lives in a place in which we don't know the goal. And I mean, maybe we're back to the same thing we always come to Afghan- with Afghanistan, which is what was our, what was our goal ever? What is our goal now? Because if we don't still don't understand that, I think any decisions we reach with regards to withdrawal will be tainted. We have to understand what we're trying to achieve. If we're trying to achieve withdrawal, then I think negotiating with the Taliban and reaching a diplomatic agreement, even if it bestows some legitimacy on them, is perhaps worth it. If we have bigger regional or global concerns when it comes to Afghanistan and the surrounding countries, which I'm sure we do, um, but they're not as important as just getting out, you know, I don't think there's going to be one answer that checks all the boxes. I think what we're looking for now is just one that checks enough and I'm inclined to say if if a diplomatic agreement with the Taliban gets us there, then it gets us there. I guess I just want to understand 
withdrawal for the sake of what? Mm -hmm. Because as we see in Syria, withdrawal is not always the most uh, peaceful option, right? We probably made the troops that are still in the Middle East less safe by talking about withdrawal of troops from Syria. We definitely made people in Syria less safe by talking about that withdrawal. I mean, we've had this conversation a lot, and I I don't have more clarity on it, really, other than to know that as the American people, we don't like the idea of preventive missions. And that is how most of our military is deployed right now. And so it's hard to understand and think about what's the goal, because the goal is something that maybe we're not even using the right tools for. I mean, maybe that's the question. What are we trying to accomplish? Okay, what are the best tools to accomplish that? And do we even have them or do we just keep repurposing the military and asking them to do all kinds of impossible things because the needs of the world keep changing? We also wanted to spend a few minutes talking about the Harvey Weinstein trial that continues. In particular, many of you reached out and wanted to talk about the daily episode in which Megan Toohey, one of the reporters who broke the Harvey Weinstein story and wrote, she said, um, with Jody Cantor, interviewed Donna Rotuno, Harvey Weinstein's defense attorney. It was a fascinating conversation. In particular... Um, at the end of the interview, Megan Tui asked Donna Rotuno, have you ever been sexually assaulted? She replies, no, and then launches into a, tr- a truly bizarre answer. And do we want to just put a little of this audio in? Okay. I had another question, which was whether or not you've been sexually assaulted. I have not. Okay. I have not. Because but- I would never put myself in that position. So you're saying, okay, actually, I'm sorry. So so you're saying that you, you're saying that you have never been sexually assaulted because you would never put yourself in the position of being sexually assaulted? No, I, I've always made choices from college age on where I, I never drank too much. I never went home with someone that I didn't know. I never, I just never put myself in any vulnerable circumstance ever. We listened to this episode together in the car, which was a good experience, I think, in that we were able to kind of process some of it in real time. And as we were listening, I started with this like, okay, I get you reaction because Harvey Weinstein and every criminal defendant deserves to have a lawyer, deserves to have a really good lawyer, deserves to have a lawyer that is hard on the system, right, that says, whatever this person is accused of doing, you must prove it, government. You must prove it using tactics that are constitutional and ethical. And so I'm with her right through that. I know you don't get why I would do this, but everyone's entitled to a defense. And then we get into more personal feelings about what constitutes actually being victimized. And I just can't understand why she, why she, Donna Rotino, agreed to give this interview and why she agreed to um, put these personal perspectives out into the public eye. I am just mystified by where this went. In her argument about why Harvey Weinstein is innocent, which she believes— is it's it shifts over time. It starts with everybody deserves a defense. Absolutely. Don't disagree with that. And it shifted from, well, this was consensual because you can see that they continue to email him and reach out to him. And some of these emails were warm. 
to basically, well, even if it wasn't consensual, they bear much of the fault because they assumed risk. Women assume risk, and that's how they get sexually assaulted is they put themselves in situations where they shouldn't be. And she basically, I mean, in the audio says, well, I've never been sexually assaulted because I don't put myself in dangerous situations. Um, I don't even know where to begin with the problematic nature of that. I will say that I that in my own experience, particularly with some of my family members, there is a a, a really really strong generational component in that I think women for decades were sent a very strong message that you bear sole responsibility. And I'm not saying anything revolutionary here that, you know, women in the 50s and the 60s and earlier into the 70s and 80s were sent the message that you bear responsibility for this. Um, You know how men are and if you drink too much or wear the wrong clothes or find your, put yourself in dangerous situations, well, then it's your fault. And that, listen, that you don't just erase all that with the Me Too movement or with, you know, conversation after conversation. It will take it took decades to place that message in women's minds and men's minds, and it will take decades to erase it. Yeah, I'm always interested when I read articles that say the Me Too movement deprives women of agency because it's almost like you either have... This worldview that Donna Rotuno was articulating of it is solely the responsibility of a woman to anticipate and guard against the absolute worst version of male behavior mm-hmm. or women have absolutely no responsibility. And I guess neither do men. We're all just subject to the worst forces of our nature. You know, that's I don't think that's what the Me Too movement is arguing, but that's the straw man that gets set up when you start to say that women lose agency because of Me Too. I think some of what goes on here, there are legal principles that get embedded into our brains, especially those of us who've gone to law school, that kind of take hold. And what you hear a little bit from Rotino is an echo of a tort doctrine called assumption of the risk. There are certain things that we say you can't sue someone for because you acquiesced to having a consequence of your own behavior. And that makes sense in certain contexts. What doesn't make sense is the way Rotuno takes that into the criminal context. You can't consent to having someone do crime to you because the analysis about crime is on the law and the perpetrator, not on the way that the victim interacted with the law and the perpetrator. So you can't consent to have someone do crime to you. And I think that power dynamics make it really hard to evaluate whether that's happened if that is a real part of the equation. And it always is going to be with sex because you can consent to have sex, right? And it seems like Rotuno is arguing that consent goes way, way, way back to like, I agreed to spend time with you alone instead of I agreed to engage in this type of conduct with you. I mean, I think everything you said is right, that the particularly from the legal perspective, that you can't consent to have a crime committed against you. Right. That's not what we're looking at. What you hear in her statements is she thinks the crime is being accused in the first place. And you hear that a lot when people talk about sexual assault and sexual assault, particularly within the criminal justice system. There's this. um 
perception, narrative, undercurrent, and it was definitely present in her interview that being falsely accused even is a crime in and of itself. Just the second you're accused, whether you're guilty or not, that's the crime. And there's this sense that it's almost like an equal crime and that we need to have all these legal processes in place to that that's the crime we really need to be working hard on preventing. It's just so out of touch with the reality of every criminal statistic, every sexual assault statistic, every sexual assault story, the history of sexual assault within the criminal justice system that, you know, it seems, you know, just completely disjointed. And you hear that in Megan Tui's voice. And, I, you know, as I thought about this interview, I feel like the inner, the the universe kept putting Chanel Miller's book, Know My Name, in front of me. And I just I finally just added it to my list because I thought this is this is the voice we need. Right. That Chanel Miller is the victim of the Stanford sexual assault case who was anonymous for a long time and then stepped out and has told her story in a book. And by all accounts, the books, the book is amazing. So I just feel like, you know, we all need less of Donna Rotuno expounding on how we should all be signing consent forms before we engage in sexual conduct, contact and more. Chanel Miller and people who have been inside the criminal justice system as sexual assault survivors and their perspective and their story. And being accused is not without consequence. No one disputes that. I mean, we started talking about the Department of Justice by saying that sometimes the investigation is the ballgame. It is a hard thing to be accused. But I really loved this from Lori Penny, who is an exceptionally talented writer. Um, In The Baffler, she wrote an article worth reading in its entirety called, Is Patriarchy Too Big to Fail? And here's what she has to say about Me Too and the presumption that we believe women. She says, innocent until proven guilty is a legal principle, not a moral standard, especially not when assuming his innocence so often requires us to assume her guilt and hers and hers and hers. I am not a judge. I am not a juror. I don't have the power to put a human being in a cage for the rest of his life. So I'm allowed to say what I actually think. I'm allowed to say it's unlikely that hundreds of witnesses and teams of prize-winning investigative reporters are wrong. I think he did it. And so does almost everyone in his industry. And so do you. And I think that that is true about Harvey Weinstein and why this interview was so difficult to suffer. I think it's true about Donald Trump. I think it is often true about people who have been accused numerous times by numerous women validated by decades of industry chatter. But all of us seem to view those situations through the lens of personal experience. And if you have personal experience that is validated by these stories, we jump into that. And for people who don't have personal experience with sexual assault and harassment, I think the tendency is to view it through the lens of, but what about those rare occasions when someone is accused by one person, not many, And it's actually not true. And it takes people down. And I just think we have to live in that complexity, you know, and and figure out how we can talk to each other about this, both understanding that our personal experiences really matter and are not the whole story. 
Beth, who would you like to compliment this week? A broad group of people working together to make the world better, I think. And if you're a Nightly Nuance listener, you heard on Monday night me talking about the African Union Summit, which took place last week. This is the 33rd time that countries across the continent of Africa have gotten together um, to work towards more peace and prosperity for Africa, which I think is hugely important. And I was very encouraged this year that the United Nations Secretary General went to the African Summit and the African Union. Summit and had real conversation about Africa's leadership's role in navigating conflict that occurs on that continent. You know, the United Nations has taken a leadership role in Libya and Sudan and in many of the real devastating civil wars that occur in Africa, in large part because those wars have been proxies for countries off of the African continent. You have interference from Russia and Iran and others in those conflicts. But a negative side effect of that has been sidelining leadership within Africa around those conflicts. And it seemed like there was a really open and healthy discussion about that at this African summit that I find encouraging. There are weighty issues in Africa right now, including the story of a of a dam being constructed by Ethiopia on the Nile River, which I'm also talking about on Patreon this week, um, that impact water security and displacement of people, climate refugees, um, conflict refugees. And I just think more leadership and structure and dialogue about that among leaders on the continent with the United Nations is a very positive sign. I'm complimenting Pete Buttigieg this week. First, because I thought he handled Rush Limbaugh's homophobic comments about him and his husband very well and very classily on the Sunday morning shows, um, which was basically, I'm not going to take a lecture on family values from Rush Limbaugh, even if he is a presidential Medal of Honor winner. Ah. Um, also, Telemundo did interviews with Pete Buttigieg, Tom Steyer, and Amy Klobuchar and asked them who the president of Mexico was, and Pete Buttigieg is the only person who was able to name the president of Mexico, and so he gets po points for that, too. It's Andre Manuel Lopez Obrador, in case you were wondering. So, good job, Pete Buttigieg. You had a strong weekend. Next up, we'll talk more about Buttigieg and others as we consider what's happening in the primary. If you're looking for a very quick salon quality, but not salon priced manicure, Olive and Jean has you covered. We've talked about Olive and Jean's Manny system before. It has everything that you need for a professional manicure in one box, salon grade tools. Your choice of six polishes. Those polishes are gonna last you for seven days or more. The cost breaks down to about $2 a manicure. Olive and June also has press-ons if you want. What I love though, is that Olive and June each season is coming out with new colors. And I just got a set of spring and summer colors in quick dry polish. And they say this dries in about a minute. It seemed dry to me in about 30 seconds. It was not kidding about being quick dry. I also love the light colors in this set. There is a huge range. My favorite one is called Kitten. It's like a pinkish gray. The quick dry polish gives you full coverage in one or two coats. It lasts for more than five days and it is offered in more than 40 cruelty-free and vegan polishes. Olive and June just understands what's happening in our lives, that we need to move quickly, but we want to look great and feel great and have fun in the process. Visit oliveandjune.com slash pantsu for 20% off your first system. That's O-L-I-V-E-A-N-D-J-U-N-E dot com slash P-A-N-T-S-U-I-T for 20% off your first Manny system. 
just finished A Court of Thorns and Roses and craving another fantasy world to devour, Dipsy's got you. Dive into spicy enemies to lovers' tales or embark on an epic romance between immortal fae and sworn foes. They've got fantasy romance stories perfect for your morning walk, late night, or long bath. Dipsy is an app full of short, spicy audio stories. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. Discover stories about second chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, and hot and heavy hookups. And there's a growing library of fantasy series with werewolves, Greek gods and goddesses, Regency-era historical fiction, and fairy smut to explore the bounds of your pleasure. New content is released every week, so in between listening to your favorite stories again and again, you can always find something new to explore. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to dipseastories.com slash pantsuit. dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Can I get something off my chest? Every day I feel a little pang of sadness. Because I think about Griffin going away to college. Y'all, he's a freshman in high school. This is not healthy or normal. This is why I have it on my list of things to talk to my therapist about. We all carry around these things. Big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us. Therapy is a safe space to get these things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. You gotta get it off your chest. And you can get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash pantsy. This weekend, I finished reading Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban to my son Amos. This is my uh, one, two, three, fourth trip through the Harry Potter series. And as we are all facing the Democratic primary process and our struggle with wanting to know what is going to happen in the Democratic primary process, this quote from the everwise Albus Dumbledore really stood out to me. He said, hasn't your experience with the time turner taught you anything, Harry? The consequences of our actions are always so complicated, so diverse that predicting the future is a very difficult business indeed. So I just thought that was a good quote to kick it off as we talk about the primary and how we're all dealing with this and how the media insist on trying to predict what's going to happen, which is a very difficult business indeed. Can I also say as we kick this off that I truly am not here to tell anyone who to vote for and I really respect the difference of opinion that our listeners bring to this process. I find the differences of opinion that our listeners bring to this process enormously helpful. Over the weekend, I read a really interesting piece from Jonah Goldberg over at The Dispatch about how it's kind of weird to call for unity in a democracy because Mm -hmm. that's not ever what we're looking for. 
When you say unity in a democracy, part of what you're saying is, I'm going to help everybody who doesn't agree with us shut up. What we need is this contest of ideas. We need lots of people who hold really different perspectives. And I think there's something really important about that in the primary process. And I want to keep listening and listening and listening. And so whomever I ultimately cast a vote for or you do, Sarah, or anyone listening does, I have the utmost respect for that. What I really want What's become more important to me than the successful candidate is for us to all make those decisions with our own sense of agency and with good information in front of us. I really want to time travel back. I wish I did have a time turner so that I could go back to an election in, let's say, 1910 or 1840 and see how individual voters talked about their vote. I mean, they weren't looking at polls. I don't think they were worried about what such and such voter was going to do if the the myth and legend of Big Block of Cheese Day from Andrew Jackson's election is any indication. It felt it was really much about a lot about the personal relationship between the voter and the 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 candidate themselves and what they connected to and what parts of their biographies and import, in, in, in particular really um, stuck with voters. And then, of course, lots of party politics was a huge piece of the puzzle as well. But, you know, I, I almost don't mind the I could never vote for Bernie or why are y'all so anti-Bernie? I mean, we get a whole spectrum here because at least we're just talking about how you as an individual voter feel about the candidate. Because I think that's that's the only thing we're talking about that we have control over, despite the fact that this is a very unique primary cycle and therefore every pundit wants to have very unique takes about what could go down in the process. Are we going to be in, are we going to be at a brokered convention? You know, they can no longer really ignore Bernie because he's won the first two contests or at least won a part of the Iowa caucus. And so seeing them work through and pay attention to his candidacy and all the hot takes about that, you know, it's exhausting. And so I hope what we can all just focus on is how we as individual voters think about these candidates. I had this moment when we were in New Hampshire at the Biden event that I keep thinking about, Sarah. We were standing in the press area and you look around the room and it's like there's Chris Jansen of MSNBC and there's Sean Hannity from Fox and here's Michael Barbaro from The Daily and just cameras and cameras. There were more media there probably than people who were just attending the event. And I had this second where I thought, Right now, it feels like the whole world is looking at what's going on in this room. And this is one of the least consequential rooms in the country right now to most people. Not because of Joe Biden or anything about the campaign, but even the smartest people I know are just kind of marginally paying attention to the primary. They care a lot about it, but the ins and outs of who said what at this event and who's a surrogate for whom and you know, where is this person in the polling and what's going on with fundraising? 
it's just easy to lose your perspective on all of that. And I think the trouble for early state voters and for people who are really engaged with politics like we are is that because so many people are sort of tangentially paying attention, it feels like a ton of pressure is on the people who are paying attention. And it's it's too much pressure. Well, it's really interesting because I think that that pressure is both misplaced and well-placed. You know, I, I think the hand-wringing about Bernie Sanders as a candidate is only helpful to a point, right? We're just going to have to find out, okay? We're just going to have to find out if more people would stay home without Bernie as a candidate or if more people will vote for Trump because they can't deal with the idea of Bernie or me, more people will um, stay home with Bernie. At the, we're just going to have to find out, right? We're just going to have to get to either primary election day or election day itself and figure out which group is bigger. And so I think the hand-wringing about his candidacy is a little fraught. At the same time, I think because of his unique strategy and a lot of other reasons, the hand-wringing and focus on Michael Bloomberg is not misplaced. You know, for better or for worse, we have all had a lot of time to examine the history of Bernie Sanders and think about what he would be like as president. Lots of time, like over five years amounts of time. So that's not a new question. That's not a new thing to think about. So we're just spinning our wheels trying to say new things about it. But we all haven't had a lot of time to learn about Michael Bloomberg's past, his past decisions as the mayor, his past decisions as a businessman, and to think about that. So I think that's really well placed. Amy Klobuchar was on a Sunday show and basically said, you know, he doesn't have to do this. He's not coming up here and answering questions on a debate stage. He's not answering questions from the press. And that needs to happen. And I think she's right. And so, you know, the sort of Bloomberg panic I'm less eye-rolly about because I think that he needs to he needs to answer the questions. He needs to be examined. His past needs to be looked at. That's an important part of the process. Here's where I sort of disagree with you. I think that the hand-wringing about Bernie is the least productive type of hand-wringing, and it is the same kind that we've had for five years. It is, can he be taken seriously? Could he actually win? Could he beat Trump? Does he appeal to the Trump voter? He gets a pass on issues. And let me say, I am not anti-Bernie. I am just not pro-Bernie. And there's a difference. And there's an important difference. And I think we all have to take a breath and stop treating each other like we're enemies if we're not voting for the same people in the primary. But with Bernie, because he is frequently not taken seriously by media, he doesn't have to answer very hard questions. I read his policy statements from his website today for the first time, which is also ridiculous. Given what I do, I should have read that a long time ago. But because it's Bernie and I feel like I know him, I haven't. So I read them today. It is a list of what might happen if you said to someone, I've just given you a magic wand. It promises the absolute moon in areas that the federal government has no jurisdiction over whatsoever. 
And he does not have to answer hard questions about that. I read a Twitter thread from Amy Sullivan today about how righteously angry so many women who support Elizabeth Warren are that Mm -hmm. she has been torn apart because she is asked how. And Bernie is never asked how. And I think that's a big problem. I'm going to link to two articles about this. One from David Graham in The Atlantic that I think is so good. It talks about, look, this is not about his policies. Because if it were about his policies, Elizabeth Warren is a really good representative of those two. This is about personality every bit as much as Trump is about personality. And we should be honest about that and learn from it. And so I think there is a lot of rich, fertile, new ground to probe about Bernie Sanders. The question is whether anybody will do it now that he's leading in the polls. A couple things I do want to push back on. One, uh, he gets asked, we spent the first freaking hour of every debate we've had so far talking about Medicare for all and healthcare policy. He just doesn't give good answers. Um, and you can hold him responsible for that or not. That's your choice. But I, I feel like he has gotten asked, how are you going to pay for this? How are you going to get it through the Senate? What's going to happen? And that's his central policy is Medicare for all, I would say. And I think that there is a certain amount of value to the magic wand question. That's the first thing I asked every person I went for a ride along with or sat down and met with when I became a city commissioner. Because you, I'm a, I like a really high level view and you get really high level um, insight into problems and issues if you act like we have a magic wand and you can think about solutions better. I don't necessarily think Bernie Sanders is obsessed with solutions in the same way Elizabeth Warren is, but whatever. I don't really disagree with you. I think that when we sat at the Bernie rally at New Hampshire, there was a sense that Bernie can do it. The fact that Bernie's running, even though he's so old, even though there were people who could have carried that torch for him, is indicative of a certain amount of only Bernie can do it. The fact that they emphasize over and over and over again that it was Bernie taking these unpopular views and that's a reason we should vote for him is, you know, reflective of something I just want to be really careful with the idea that there's this link between Bernie and Trump. And because there is a populist thread um, present for both of them without a doubt, I think that there's a real danger in talking about them with even a hint of, of equivalency. Because Bernie Sanders is running for president after decades as a United States senator. And Bernie Sanders, despite his wishful thinking about how to get through, get things through the government, does understand the government and has a lot of experience um, in working in the government. And I think that he has consistently had this sort of, we need to take the fight to the streets and this kind of grassroots approach. But grassroots, even with a heavy dose of populism, is not what Donald Trump has ever been selling. And I just, you know, I, I thought a lot about that since we set the, the the campaign rally. And I've heard a lot of, I mean, we came out of the campaign rally and heard three people describe it like, oh, it just sounds like a Trump rally. And I just, I think that's an, that's an easy comparison to make. And I don't think it's completely unfounded. I just think we need to be really careful because Bernie Sanders is not Donald Trump. And I, that's not exactly revolutionary, but I just think that it's it, it becomes this narrative that feeds on itself and it's not fair. It really isn't. We have to be specific about what you mean. 
right? I don't mean Do- Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump are equivalents. I mean, it is both about it is about personality with both of them. I think in their supporters and the intensity of the support. I also think that there is a question in my mind about what to make of Bernie Sanders having this wish list given all of his knowledge and understanding of government. He is not a person who doesn't know the difference between federal and state prison, but he still talks about them like they're one thing. And how am I to understand that? And how am I to understand it when every question he's asked, the answer is, well, we're just going to marshal the the people. The people are going to make it happen. When he hasn't advanced much legislation in his many years of government service by marshalling the people, you know? And, and so it's not that I think he's a bad guy. I genuinely believe that he believes what he says in terms of what the ultimate outcomes for the American populace should be. I do not think he is the same as Donald Trump. I just have questions that I don't think get answered. You don't hear enough follow-up from press when he defaults to the grassroots. Okay, Mm -hmm. well, tell me how that's going to happen. Do you mean to tell us that you're going to deliver the Senate to Democrats also? Like, what's the plan? Well, and here's the thing, though, that, and listen, I love Elizabeth Warren and I love her plans. But the struggle for that is, you know, twofold for me. I mean, one, I think that there is a personality component. But you and I listened to that interview from the people knocking doors from Bernie on Start Here. And the woman was like, I don't love that it's a seven year eight-year-old who had a heart attack, but I suffered through this medical trauma and this is system is unacceptable. And he's the only one who's consistently been saying that. And so I he's my guy. Like, I want radical change to the healthcare in this country. And so he's my guy. And I, so I don't think it's necessarily all personality in the same way that if we're being honest with ourselves, when we say Trump was a manifestation of a problem and not the problem itself, Trump wasn't. He was the right personality for the moment. And the moment contained problems and issues and concerns and passions and desperation. And Bernie's the same, right? That personality is is the key to a certain lock. But we ought to talk about why that door is locked to begin with. And when it comes to the plans, you know, there's a part of me that's like, how am I going to open the show and say, or this segment and say, we can't tell the future And we have to acknowledge that when we're talking about campaigns and then then want them to stand up there and say, let me tell you the future about how this is going to go down when I'm president. I mean, I just struggle with that because I'm not going to believe them, even if they have the best plan. I love Elizabeth Warren and her plans. And there's a part of me that thinks, I love you, sister. You know that you could get in there and September 11th could happen just like George W. Bush and everything goes out the window. So, you know, it's it's this really difficult paradox, which we have to sit with in the messy, messy middle of this primary. And I think I'm beginning to believe it's just good for us. You know, we think personality is bad, but we have to lean on personality because we don't know what's going to happen once they're elected. And we think that we want plans, but that those are limited because it's a democracy and it's co-equal forms of government. And there's a million people they can't control that hold the levers of power like they do. And so it's just really it's really difficult. See, I actually think it's not that difficult because I don't think personality is irrelevant. I think it's very relevant. I think it's more relevant than a lot of the plans. So I don't think it's wrong for it to be a cult of personality. In some ways, we just have to be honest about that and able to step back from it. And I think it's not that we want zero plans or completely detailed plans. It's that we want someone who will be open in discussing with the American people. Here is the outline of my agenda. 
And here is what I will recommend to Congress. But then they are the people who have to do it. And here's how I intend to work with them to try to get this done. You know, if I think it gets to the fact that depending on the day and the angle of a story or the framing of a debate question, we act like we're trying to hire a legislator in chief instead of a commander in chief and someone who generally leads the executive branch. And if if we could pull back from all that and recognize like this is a difficult position to hire for. It has a lot of different components. To the issue of character, though, it does bother me that Sanders promises a radically ambitious agenda. And it's not that I'm looking for greater technical specificity. I'm wanting to understand within the confines of three co-equal branches in a federalist republic, how is it that some of this is going to happen? Well, I think his answer would be, it, and it's. I think it is Elizabeth Warren's answer as well. It happens when you have an enormous amount of political support and you don't build a wave of grassroots support that's powerful enough to force the change you want to see by saying, well, it's difficult and we might not get it all done and we're just going to keep our, our demands really pragmatic, right? I mean, they're going to tell you that, I think if they're being honest anyway, particularly Bernie, we build this sort of passion and these sort of dedicated supporters. And that's why he's winning. Make no mistake about it. That's why he's winning this primary right now is because he has an extremely dependable fundraising base and an extremely dependable organization full of volunteers. And he has that not because he looks at them and says, I'm going to give you this really pragmatic list of things I might or might not be able to achieve because we really have to depend on Congress. He does that by saying, this is the future that I see. You want to join me? You know, it's not, it's it's a vision, right? It's not a plan. It's a vision. This is what I'd like to see America look more like. And yeah, you got you to gotta dream big if that's how you're trying to motivate people, because that's how you are building power within your campaign and hope to build power once you're in office. I understand that. And I think it is ethically problematic. What happens when the revolution doesn't come? You know, and how do you define the revolution? Is it just electing someone with that vision? And I think, listen, I think that that is as problematic as what's happening in the Bloomberg campaign. Right. That's that's exactly what I was going to say. How are you going to have problem problem with the populist fervor and not problem with basically a marketing campaign? I do have a problem with the marketing campaign, a big one. And I think it's good that we are starting to get media scrutiny focused in on the record of Mike Bloomberg, who has done a lot of really good things in the world with his money. And I do not want to be... Um, I don't want to give that short shrift. And I also Mm -hmm. think that what's happening in this campaign is troubling and comes from a troubling message deliverer as well, because the way that Mike Bloomberg orchestrated a third term for himself as New York City's mayor has run his businesses, is running this campaign, is spending money like he can print it. All of those things to me are as authoritarian as some of what we see from Donald Trump and as I Mm -hmm. have concerns that we would see from a President Sanders. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible and skincare is a huge piece of that. 
I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, and Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. There's not much worse than a dry energy scalp. Also, when you get your hair colored and then it does not last as long as you and your stylist discussed, it could be that unfiltered, mineral-filled water is the culprit. Hard water is a leading cause of damaged hair and dry, irritated skin, and about 85% of the United States uses hard water, filled with dissolved minerals and added chlorine. That's where Canopy's new filtered shower head comes in. Canopy, known for their beauty hacks and reimagined humidifier, has revolutionized the filtered shower head. Dermatologists recommended this unique three-stage filtration system greatly reduces contaminants and odors in your shower water, leaving you with healthy hair and glowing skin. Best of all, the Canopy filtered shower head is hassle-free. Installation is a breeze, and its unique quick-release filter replacement feature allows for seamless filter replacement unlike any others on the market. Go to getcanopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy filtered showerhead purchase today with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, our listeners can use code Pantsuit at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. Yeah, I think we have concerns about what we'd see from a President Bloomberg. That's what I mean. I think they're all in this category of I worry about what happens if this is the executive branch. Yeah, because he, you know, he thinks he's right. I mean, that's what I get from Michael Bloomberg. That's what I read. The more I read about him, the, you know, in-depth dive on the sexual harassment claims from his organization in The Washington Post this weekend was incredibly disheartening. And it just, the more I learn about him and the more I read about him, 
you know, Michael Bloomberg thinks he's right. Michael Bloomberg thinks he has the right answer and the solution and that he's the person to do it. Even though I do think that you see an undercurrent of, I, I think what sets him apart is Michael Bloomberg has a passion for organization and resources that go beyond himself. And I think that is to be praised. I think that what that his dedication to spending this resources to support whoever the nominee is, to um, building real um, resources for the Democratic Party, what he's done with Moms Demand Action. Lots of things speak to his desire to use his resources in a long-lasting way, but still the priorities for those are still his personal priorities based on what he sees as the problems. And look, maybe we're all operating like that to a certain degree, and he just has more money to make a bigger impact. But man, some of the stuff from his past, even if he's you know grown, and I want to give people room to grow and change, they're not great. Well, if it were just stop and frisk, and he learned from it and is genuinely sorry and sees the entirety of how that profiles people and condemns communities of color and deprives them of constitutional rights like that on its own is a really big, difficult thing mm-hmm. to overcome. But it's not only that. It is also the allegations of workplace harassment that I haven't heard him say anything other than not what I said about. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I think that is a huge problem. And then you have these campaign tactics. Um, there was such a good op-ed in the New York Times about this that said, Mike Bloomberg and his presidential campaign respect the fundamental equation governing the modern internet. Shamelessness and conflict equal attention and attention equals power. These extremely online tactics fit the larger ethos of the Bloomberg campaign, which feels like a control group experiment for a study positing. What if you ran a presidential campaign so optimized for efficiency and reach that you cut the human element of campaigning altogether? As my Mm. newsroom colleague wrote in January, Mr. Bloomberg is not really playing chess. He is more accurately working to bury the board with a gusher of cash so overpowering that everyone forgets how the game was always played in the first place. And that's just that is to me a a difference in degrees from what Trump did with earned media. Right. He just shredded the rules and flooded the field. And it seems like that's what Bloomberg is doing with paid media. There's also a great op-ed from Ross Dow that we'll link to both of these in the show notes where he talks about how Bloomberg represents a rich person's idea of centrism and it is a real takedown of Bloomberg worth reading its in, in its entirety. But he says those who choose Bloomberg should know what they're inviting, an exchange of Trumpian black comedy for oligarchy's velvet fist, that it will feel better under a Bloomberg because Bloomberg's temperament is more comforting than Trump's temperament. But it will not be that the executive branch is relegated to its proper role in our constitutional system, you know, and I think that there's something really important to think about there because I have found myself thinking, well, like, should Bloomberg be my candidate? And that would be true only because of temperament as expressed through the filter of lots of marketing. But that Mm -hmm. temperament is undermined by these reports of how he actually treated women and especially pregnant women in his companies and by the way he actually governed New York City. And so 
I I really appreciate this writing that is helping me see him more clearly and think more clearly about his candidacy. I understand the pull of fight fire with fire, but when I see him tweeting in the same kind of vernacular that Donald Trump uses, and when I think about the fact that Bloomberg versus Trump would really just be about who makes more money and mar- markets more effectively, that makes me sick for our country. Mm-hmm. So I think as we're facing this messy middle, I want to be clear that the idea is not to tune it out or to um, rush to a conclusion and move on. I think that the messy middle and storytelling is where all the breakthroughs happen. You don't get them in the fresh start and you don't get them in the neat conclusion. You get them in the messy middle where you set with hard things. You sit with hard questions about the candidates that you might not ever get the answers to, understanding that no one is perfect. You know. Another thing I've been thinking about as we are in this really difficult phase of the primary, my husband said, well, why don't we have better candidates? And I'm like, they're good candidates. It's not that they're bad candidates. And also what we're asking of these people is incredibly difficult. You know, I think the assumption of the power with the presidency is that, you know, it's a cushy gig and it might be. And I think there are lots of people who would like to be president and lots of people who would never, ever, ever, ever want to think about being president. But what is Beyond debate is that running for president against Donald Trump is going to be horrific. And that's what we're asking these people to do. So, I mean, I'm just trying to leave space for that, that this is a difficult thing we're asking them to do, that we all have to face their very um, human natures and flaws and mistakes and understand that we're not going to run them all through a computer program or even the best quiz on the best news site and find out who our perfect candidate is because there isn't one. And I think sitting with all this in the messy middle is really good for us. It's good for us not because of just because of 2020. It's good for us because of what happened in 2016. And we all have to, you know, face some difficult questions and concerns and issues that surfaced during that election. And what better time than the messy middle of the Democratic primary to um, work through some some of those things? I was thinking today about if I ever ran for office, what caricature of me would be used. And I started thinking, you know, Beth Silvers has never fully committed to a single career. She dabbles in self-help to a point that borders on the ridiculous. You know, she works too much, just, you know, doesn't spend enough time with her children or left a promising career at the expense of other women in order to spend more time with her children. You know, there's so many things. We can all be packaged in a way that is ugly and horrific and that has truth in it. Um, you know, people would say about me that I am steeped in white feminism, right? And and there would be legitimate strains of criticism in all of that. And it's helpful for me to think about that because I think it makes this an opportunity for growth, as you were just saying, Sarah. I think we have to choose to want to grow through this messy middle um, because it can certainly take us in the other direction. But as I sit there, then I have a lot of grace for all of the people who put themselves out. We're so uncomfortable with anyone seeking or holding power that we really do like to tear those folks down. And so rather than think to myself, I'm really disappointed that Amy Klobuchar couldn't name the president of Mexico, I think to myself, but imagine what it must be like to be in this process and what it must be like to be asked constant barrages of questions to have every aspect of your life and your circle of friends and advisors scrutinized, every dollar you've ever spent scrutinized. And it's a lot. And so while it's important to critique these candidates, 
um, as we have done and will continue to do, and as all of us need to be doing, it is also important to just remember this process is awful and not something that I would ever wish for myself or anyone who I love a lot. (laughs) Um, And so I'm grateful that they're running, even those with whom I completely disagree and have very serious concerns about. Well, I don't have to wonder how people would package me. I can go to West Kentucky Star's comment thread on my campaign announcement from both campaigns and read exactly all the nasty things people see and conclude from my life experiences and life choices. It's an incredibly unpleasant experience. And I think that choosing to grow, choosing to allow these people to be human beings and to Despite the fact that this is a winner-take-all election and that there seems like there is a lot on the line to allow grace and space within the process for more than this is the best thing that ever happened and this is the end of the world. Because, you know, I can't tell the future, but I feel like the future, whatever happens in the Democratic primary and the general election, is much bigger than those two choices. Sarah, what's on your mind outside of politics? Well, I went to see Parasite. It's very intense. It's like four movies in one movie. But it is genius and has such an interesting perspective on class. Talking about human beings and grace and messy middle and complicated behaviors. Whew, it it was really, really good. All the listeners who were like, you have to see it, you have to see it, you have to see it. They were right. I, in fact, had to see it. And I'm so glad I did. And I highly, highly recommend it. How many of the Oscar winners have you seen? And where would you put it in the, the universe of Oscar winners that you've, or, or Oscar nominees that you've seen? Okay, so I've seen Parasite, I have seen The Irishman, all 11 hours of it. I have seen Little Women, and I've seen A Marriage Story. So I've seen a little under half of the nominees for Best Picture. I would say it is by far the the best. Oh, I don't know Little Women so good. That's really hard. Um, Yeah. mm, I mean, they're both good. I don't want to choose. But Parasite is very, very unique. Um, And Little Women is a remake. So it's a brilliant remake. I don't want to undercut it, but that is what it is. I, I just, Parasite, as far as I can tell, I feel pretty confident, even without seeing Joker or 1917, saying that they, they picked the best picture for sure. Well, I watched a marriage story on Friday when I was in the throes of a virus, and I'm going to refer everyone who asked me why I'm no longer a lawyer to that movie for the rest of time, because I, as a lawyer, was Alan Alda in that movie, who is like, everybody, I love you, your people, this is hard. And we can spend all kinds of money and it's not going to make you feel better. And it seems crazy, doesn't it? But that's just what it is. Option A is terrible. Option B is worse. This is the world that we live in the justice system. And and the fact that he portrayed that with such clarity just really spoke to me. I'm probably the only person who focused so much on his role in this movie. Um, But I thought it was 
so lovely to recognize the version of myself that was a lawyer there. I thought the acting was so good. I do love Adam Driver. Um, I thought Laura Dern was great, as all of the accolades for her would signal. But I am just going to take a little clip of him now and save it in my email so that when people say, why aren't you a lawyer anymore? I can say, because I was this kind of lawyer. And those kinds of lawyers are wonderful and needed, but it is also a really hard walk through life to be this person. Yeah, that that not husband says the movie should be called The Divorce Story. It's not really about a ma- <laughs> the marriage as much as it is about the divorce. And it is brutal, just brutal, really, really is. It's brutal under these circumstances that feel crushingly normal, I guess, except mm-hmm. for the fact that she's an actress and he's a director and it involves this real fight over where they're going to live. But even that part, I mean, it is. It is so crushingly normal, the things that these two went through and the way their child experienced some of it. I was I was sobbing watching the end of it. And then I got up and I saw Chad for a second. And he said, what'd you think? And I started sobbing just trying to tell him about it. And it's hard to tell people about because everything happens, but not that much happens because it's just a story about all these tiny things that we do to break each other's hearts. Anyway, it's, I thought it was excellent. Well, thank you for joining us for another episode of Paint Soup Politics. We will be back in your ears tomorrow over at The Nuance Life. If you have not um, checked out our other podcast, it's basically an extension of this section of the show where we talk about cultural things we're paying attention to. We take advice questions and we let listeners commemorate important moments in their lives that go beyond, you know, showers and weddings and retirements. So you should check it out. We'll be there tomorrow, um, Wednesday talking on the nuanced life and we'll be back here on friday as always until then keep it nuanced y'all dylan garvin produces pantsuit politics every week thanks for making us sound better dylan elise knapp is our managing director which means we could not make it without her scheduling organization feedback and creativity thank you elise we couldn't make Pantsuit Politics without support from our listeners. Go to patreon.com slash pantsuitpolitics to learn how you can receive more nuance and help us make the show. Special thanks to our executive producers who have committed to supporting us in a major life-giving way. Our executive producers are Tracy Putoff, Tim Miller, David McWilliams, Joshua Allen, Linda Rucker, Martha Bernatsky, Melanie Cravey, and Tiffany Hassler. Our theme music is composed and performed by Dante Lima. The music under our ads is composed and performed by Dylan Garvin. Learn more about our lives, live events that we're involved in, and what we're reading each week by signing up for our weekly newsletter at pantsuitpoliticsshow.com. And connect with members of the Pantsuit Politics community by following us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter.